Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Reese Tebow on the show. Reese reports on the American West Coast from Los Angeles for the Washington Post. He joined the Post in 2018 and has covered national breaking news, European politics, and D.C. City Hall. He previously worked on the local desks of the Boston Globe and the Columbus Dispatch. We have him on the show today because he wrote a front page story on the Bitwise situation for the Post, and has done some excellent reporting on the subject, interviewing both former Bitwise employees as well as investors and local political figures. Most of all, he has an outside perspective, less clouded by personal connections or vested interests, to look at the situation more clearly. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. So, Reese, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Oh, man. Okay. So coming from, I think, one of the world's greatest taco cities, it's pretty tough to impress me. But I've always been really pleased by the taco game in Fresno. And when I was there last, I went to Premio Mayor. And I don't remember which location, but it was the one that didn't make the queso birria, which was incredibly disappointing. But what I what I remember having there was excellent. You and I went to La Elegante, right? Yep. That spot was good. That was really solid. But I think my I think my favorite place was Ho Ho Cafe downtown. This spot in Chinatown. I've not been there. No, where is that? It's in Chinatown. It's like it's been around for like 40, 50 years, kind of a hole in the wall spot, but it's it's incredible. I had like lo mein and omelet and hash browns. It's just like it's a perfect greasy spoon and the people who run it are amazing, super kind. I think the chef goes by James Bond. So shout out to him. But Ho Ho Cafe was great. Yeah, would recommend. Do you think there's anything that distinguishes kind of Fresno tacos from tacos you get in LA? Ooh, I, I know the it's it's tough. I think I, this is not my expertise. I'm I'm mostly concerned with eating them. There probably is something that that distinguishes them, and I'm just like not well versed enough to be able to tell. I know the I know the Fresno taco truck phenomenon is huge. I mostly stuck to brick and mortar when I was there this time. In LA, it's it's amazing. Some of the best tacos you can find are like served out of tents on the sidewalk that are set up in the evenings. And I think that that kind of vibe, I think, has like a lot in common with the Fresno taco truck thing. So I think there's I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of similarity. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's probably some performative differences with tacos in Los Angeles where you have to compete in a very intense space. Whereas here it feels kind of like maybe a bit more homely and kind of your everyday working man's tacos, as opposed to something where you just have a lot more, just a lot more. I mean, one of my favorite taco places was in Los Angeles was like you said, on the street in Koreatown Mm -hmm. and there's like 10 other restaurants right on that block that are worth your time. And so you just got to compete in a really intense space. So I suspect that probably has something to do with it. But we can talk about tacos forever. Let's get to what we're talking about today, which is uh, Bitwise. But we're going to take a step back before we go there and talk about your first project in Fresno. So can you talk briefly about how your first encounters with Fresno, what the project was and what the culmination of that project was? 
Yeah. So the first time I came to Fresno was in 2017, and I was part of a 10-person reporting team at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Our team was tackling the topic of inequality in Fresno, which is an incredibly broad subject, but each of us kind of took on one slice of inequality. So my reporting partner and I were tasked with examining the criminal justice system specifically. And it began as a project kind of analyzing data on traffic stops that we received from public records requests. And as I was going through it, I realized something that was already probably pretty obvious to the folks living this reality, which is that you can't talk about policing without talking about neighborhoods and geography and their history. And we focused most of our efforts on Southwest Fresno, which is neighbor, a redlined neighborhood, part of the city that's home to most of Fresno's Black residents. And from there, I just spent a ton of time at Fresno's public library in that California history room, reading about old redlining practices and historical patterns of disinvestment in this part of the city, which created these desperate economic conditions. And we found that in our analysis, we found that police used these kind of police today and recently used pretty heavy handed policing tactics and disproportionately targeted Black residents, Black drivers, especially in the Southwest when making arrests. So we kind of drew the line from patterns of of redlining and and just discrimination that have existed in this part of the city since its founding to the present day and how those patterns are kind of reflected in in the city's policing. Did you determine that this was kind of uniquely bad or representative of common patterns that you see in a lot of cities? It's representative of common patterns you see in a lot of cities. Fresno, I think, is interesting because it's always this better than me, but it it has kind of presented itself as a law and order city, a city where theoretically um, the police are there to protect and serve, a city that recently elected its longtime police chief to be its mayor. And so I think it in in light of that, this kind of examination of how the police treats different people in different parts of the city was especially revealing. Okay. And what was the reception to that series of articles that you did, both inside and out? Yeah, I mean, I think it this this series published both with the Bay Area radio station KQED and in a more abbreviated form in the Atlantic magazine, it it created a, a little bit of a stir. But I think the especially the the kind of historical analysis, the, the redlining and segregation part of the piece had a kind of second life in the summer of 2020 after George Floyd was killed and people were kind of newly reckoning with their own city's histories. I actually got a lot of people reaching out, even though that was two years after the story published. I got a lot of people reaching out then saying they had just seen the story. They'd never heard that this was happening in Fresno. They never knew about this history. And and that that was that was that's always gratifying when you can when you can bring something to light that people hadn't heard. So it was prescient. It was it was a little bit ahead of of patterns that were already kind of in the works. I think I would say that as someone that read the article, 
So that was that was your kind of first major interaction with Fresno. Uh, let's now talk about Bitwise. So when I moved to Fresno, the Fresno area, living both in Fresno and Madeira, and asked about interesting things going on in town, one of the first things that would come up would be Bitwise. And in a lot of ways, you can't miss it because when you drive into town, they have those kind of giant signs right along the 41 freeway going north. And so to kind of come into town is to kind of come through the gates of Bitwise into the city. And But when I asked people exactly what they did, there was typically a lot of confusion about what the business was. There was a sense that it was a tech business. There were some people that said real estate. There were some people that said coding education. And so it was kind of a myriad list of things. And then later on, the hype kind of spread nationally as some journalists like James Fallows covered in his book, some other journalists covered it and kind of seeing it as potentially a way for mid-sized cities to expand their economy into the 21st century. And that's kind of how it was marketed. But I'm just curious, uh, what was your initial impressions of what Bitwise was and what was your understanding of the impact that they wanted to make? Yeah, this ties back to our my my first time in Fresno in 2017 because when we were when we were there we spent a ton of time in Fresno in in 17 and 18 and we were talking to people about a lot of hard things that were happening in the city but inevitably folks would say like well there's a lot of good stuff happening in Fresno too look at Bitwise it was held up even then especially then as an example of positivity coming out of Fresno. And our reporting team actually considered renting some co-working space there. The the cold brew in, in one of their spots like fueled a lot of our reporting trips. It was especially coming from the Bay Area. It was like, like a little slice of downtown Oakland or something that popped up in Fresno. We knew there was co-working space and I but I didn't I didn't know much beyond that. I and I, I didn't, I didn't really think about it. I saw this company, I saw the kind of splashy branding, and it seemed like a kind of localized version of WeWork. And I think back then it was still very much that kind of hometown success story, and and one that hadn't really spread all over downtown in quite the same way. I think when I was there, I think they only had two locations and the something about the painting of the building, the branding, it wasn't quite as ostentatious as it, as it became later. And certainly they hadn't begun expanding to other cities, but yeah, like you said, I mean, it, it just, it really took off the company did during the pandemic, I think, and, and f- following the racial justice reckoning in 2020, I think a lot of, a lot of the company's messaging seemed to resonate with city officials and venture capitalists who were kind of looking to put their dollars to a to a good sort of equitable use and i th- i think for the bitwise founders that they felt that that kind of validated their their vision and position all along let's talk about the collapse um, which is going to be obviously the sub the main subject of what we're talking about before we do that though i want to talk a little bit about the reporting you did so when you when you came to fresno to cover uh, the collapse, and we'll get kind of to the play-by-play in a second. But um, how did you think about who to talk to and what was important to cover in this story? Yeah, it was it was kind of a, a, a doozy reporting effort. And at first, I was just looking to talk to any former employees who could tell me just what happened. A lot of the initial reporting that came out after the company furloughed all its workers, relied on some anonymous sourcing. And so it was sort of difficult to figure out who 
was willing to talk. Um, but slowly I got people to go on record and it seemed like the more people I talked to, uh, the more people were willing to discuss this. It was, it was kind of a tricky process at first. A, a lot of folks weren't comfortable getting into it, I think for different reasons, but I think especially former employees were, were kind of afraid that they might not receive the back pay they were owed if they, if they spoke publicly about this. I think that fear kind of eased as the reporting went on. I was covering, I was, I was reporting on this for maybe two, two or three weeks. So over that time, more and more people decided to talk, but yeah, I wanted, I wanted to just speak to employees who are at the center of it. And as I began to build that base of sources, I tried to to talk to more and more people who kind of were, were closer to the decision makers. And, and then they kind of network outside of the company, the local officials, the people who were business partners with Jake Soberall and Irma Olga and the founders and the, the people who lent them money and the people who were approached about lending them money, but decided not to lend them money. I think with Bitwise just touched so many corners of the city. So there were a lot of people who had some kind of dealings with, with the company. And I was looking to talk to as many as many folks as I could. And I think in the end, I wound up talking to something like 25 or 30 people and a good chunk were on the record. So based on your reporting, what is your understanding of what took place around Memorial Day and the impressions in some of the Bitwise employees you talked to of what was going on in their heads? I think I think from kind of a, a big picture, the image that emerged after all of my reporting was one of a company that had these kind of grand starry-eyed ambitions and it found a good amount of success on a small scale and then expanded incredibly rapidly and spent a ton of money really quickly without bringing much in. And in the end, on Labor Day, that was when it became obvious they could no longer keep it up. I think the it, it seemed clear that the that the company had a lot of kind of plates spinning, and at some point, they just all came crashing down. And I think in that way, it's a story. It's a story akin to a lot of kind of startups go bust narratives. But there were also a lot of ways in which this was not the usual tale. There, there are now more lawsuits than I can keep track of accusing the company of wrongdoing. There are allegations of bounced paychecks and and stolen 401k money and lapsed health insurance. And there's an FBI investigation, as my reporting confirmed. And, and a lot of the company's key funders have come out and said that they were just outright deceived by the company's founders. So in a way, it it reminds us of a lot of kind of boom bust startup stories, but but there's also some kind of exceptionalism here that that makes this story feel more like WeWork or Theranos to comparisons that people brought up as I was doing my reporting than like the average startup company that just goes belly up. Yeah, I think it's it kind of why it's maybe unique in some ways. If you if you take th- Theranos is in a, a kind of a contrast here. There was a lot of very wealthy people deceived. But if you think about Fresno, it's a very different demographic being deceived. And so I think, at least for me, that's that's why it hurts more so than some of these other cases is that 
these mid-level cities like Fresno that are struggling to a lot of people that are struggling, low-income demographics. It's it, it just feels different in that capacity. Would you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. I think that's the that's the really sad irony with the Bitwise story is that the people it was formed to help and that by many accounts, it did help for a while. People who were underrepresented, who were never given a chance to succeed in this space, those people were the same people left in the lurch when the company shut down suddenly. And it does feel like for a lot of them, Bitwise changed their life twice when they hired them and then when they when they fired them and and closed down. Yeah. So in your reporting you did encounter some people that were maybe a bit defensive or perhaps feel like media didn't accurately cover the good that Bitwise was was doing. What was what was some of their reasoning for why they were still trying to hold on to certain ideas about the company? I think it's a I think this was one of the most complicated parts of the story because it is not it's it's not a a straightforward tale of like this Potemkin company that pretended to be something and was really doing evil it, it again from my reporting a lot of a lot of people have cited good that that was done and certainly there were hundreds of employees that drew checks from from bitwise at least until the end who have said they would never have gotten a job at a at a kind of glitzy tech startup before. Either they didn't have the requisite experience or the degree, or they were formerly incarcerated, or just didn't didn't have access in general. And so I think like for a lot of people, the the reckoning of this kind of life-changing, this sort of life-changing access to a world they never thought they'd be able to enter, it it, it was hard, it was hard to that being true is also hard to reckon with the the idea that like in the end the the sort of love that the founders said they held for their employees just did not extend to did not extend to or seemed to seem to kind of run out with the with the money and i think i think that's what that's what made this so difficult one person i talked to compared it to the loss of a of a family member and and i think like for some for some employees they felt like the people they worked with were their family. They're certainly super close friends and and lots of close relationships throughout the company and feeling kind of safe and at home in a, in an accepting environment was just kind of made this was sort of life-changing for them. And so when, when that all came crashing down, they had to both reckon with the loss of a job and the loss of this kind of personal important community. And, and I, and I think that, I think that for for a lot of folks I talked to, the idea that that after the fact Bitwise was being portrayed as as kind of a Ponzi scheme all along, and and the subtext there being that the that the employees were kind of stooges that went along with it, I think a lot of people felt that that was just totally unfair and that it, it did not kind of capture the 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 value that that maybe Bitwise brought to the communities they operated in, not just Fresno, but other cities, but also kind of the value that the that the company had for the employees themselves. And how did these interviews with former employees differ than compared to when you talk to politicians? I think there's a lot of political interests here and posturing that goes on to make sure you're on the right side of these things. What was your impressions from talking with them? 
I, I think I think the the politicians I spoke with were always careful to say that they really feel for the employees and and the biggest impact of this is the 900 or so people across the country who are out of work. I do think that in in subsequent sentences, officials were more willing to kind of forcefully denounce the company and and its operators. Whereas a lot of the employees I talked to, not all of them, certainly, but but a lot of the employees I talked to had those kind of more complicated feelings I was I was mentioning. Okay. What were some of the impressions you gathered from the interviews about uh, Jake and Irma? And do you know if they've actually communicated with any other media since uh, Memorial Day? As far as I know, they have not spoken to the press or to their former employees. Some folks I talked to who were on texting bases with both of them had reached out and hadn't gotten a response from Jake or Irma. I don't know if they've spoken off the record to other outlets. I've reached out in lots of different ways, including knocking on both of their doors and didn't get a response from them either. Okay. Which, I mean, if this is going to go the direction of maybe potentially criminal proceedings, that would make sense that you would want to be mums the word. Um, But I'm just curious because they are kind of at the kind of head of this ship and kept a lot of things close to the chest as far as I understand. And what was your sense about insulation from the problems? Was it mostly in kind of the executive boardroom, if you will, where most of this was going on? Or did you get the sense that people knew that there were problems? Yeah, I mean, I think my my sense was that was that the company's leaders kept the financial goings on pretty pretty close to the vest, and a lot of employees I talked to just didn't know that the company was in such dire trouble until some of the local reporting started asking questions, and even after that, when employees would send a send a link to a local news story sort of suggesting that there have been some financial difficulties. When they would send that to a to a colleague or a superior, they would be told everything's fine. And there were some all all staff emails sent after one particular story was published that I th- I think basically made made sort of a, a joke about the the idea that Bitwise would be struggling financially and and kind of doubled down on on claiming that they were that they were fine. So it just, I, I think when it all, when it all went bust, it really took a lot of people by surprise. So when you wanted to cover this at your newspaper, what was kind of the response in terms of the relevance for a national audience? Did that, was that relevant seen immediately or did you have to kind of do some persuasion there? Well, I think in every story we cover, we, we, we have to make a strong case because we have a pretty big platform and there are so many important stories nationally that we can't cover everything. Um, with Bitwise in particular, it struck me it struck me as as just a compelling a compelling kind of saga of something that set out to do good and ended up and ended up going really wrong. Um, the fact that it was happening in Fresno, where I have a kind of personal connection drew me to the story as well and and just kind of the idea that, if this were happening in another city, I think it would be getting more attention. I think it's it feels to me like one of the biggest stories in the Central Valley this year in the last couple of years. And I do think it has national implications, not just because Bitwise in the end 
had a national footprint, but because I think it does say something about the way that tech companies can kind of sell themselves and sell their their vision to cities and how that sometimes just really doesn't work out. We talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but can you just share some of the responses and the reactions you got to the article after it was published? Sure. Yeah. So <laughs> I heard a lot from people writing in to ask, okay, I just read that story. So what exactly does Bitwise do? Which <laughs> is maybe maybe a reflection on on some of the writing, which could have been maybe more more clear, but I think don't sell yourself short. The writing was great. <laughs> it, it's, I think, it's the business concept. I think, I think really, right. I think really, I appreciate that, but I think what it, yeah, it reflects is um, kind of a, a general, a general mystique about the company's business plan that, that plagued it until the very end. And I think that ended up being one of the main problems is that in, in the end, maybe Bitwise didn't really even know what, what Bitwise was. Yeah. And I think something that I am coming back to a lot in this, it's really easy to, in the aftermath of these things, to kind of split in some ways, good and bad, trying to find the culprit, trying to find someone to blame. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that we don't really have a sense of tragedy when seeing that someone that tried to do something good and then it ultimately came to not when, and having that like well-intentioned person who made or well-intentioned company that got off the rails. And I think that is from a lack of a sense of tragedy. And so it's hard to kind of maintain that kind of ambivalent perspective on something, especially when there's pretty devastating economic impacts to a lot of people. But I think if I would summarize it, I would summarize it as a tragedy. Would you? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think all it takes is looking at the hundreds of people who who lost their jobs and not only lost their jobs suddenly, but are without weeks of pay that they were owed, can't access their 401k accounts. Some of them are in medical debt now because their health insurance unexpectedly expired. And and again, these are these are folks who 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 were supposed to be given this kind of life-changing opportunity to succeed in in the tech world and now are are sort of high and dry. And I think that is the that is the tragic part of this. Okay, so let's let's take a step back from this story and think about implications here. So when I've talked about Bitwise with people and their promises and their goals, one of the things I've said over and over to people is that all the things that they wanted to do were good and were in the Valley's best interests. But now that this has kind of imploded, I am concerned about the impacts, long-term impacts to these kinds of industries in the Central Valley. I mean, if you're an investor and you are approached by a, a company with similar goals, Bitwise is going to be in the back of their mind. So from your perspective, what kind of impact do you think that this will have on tech initiatives in the Central Valley? Yeah, I think that's all fair. I think the the long-term effects are going to be pretty hard to parse and predict. And I I I agree. I think there there might be some more wariness locally about these kind of fancy startups making bold promises. I think on the on the flip side, and this is what some local leaders have said too, is the sort of best thing that Bitwise has done for the city is the actual buildings, the buildings that they kind of renovated and beautified downtown. In the end, Bitwise didn't own them, local developer did. And so now those buildings are still there. They're not, they're not caught up in the bankruptcy filings, which would have made it all much more complicated. Now new businesses can move in. And and if that happens, there, 
maybe some of that kind of downtown momentum will will live on and i think i think the i think kind of the optimistic view is that bitwise showed people that it actually is possible to start a tech company in fresno because it wasn't like they found they were founded and then a couple of years later they they blew up they were around for 10 years and i think i think that that story might show kind of future founders that it is possible to to do something this far from silicon valley and in fact i think former bitwisers have already launched their own startup at least one maybe more so i i think it's possible that there could be kind of a whole network of newly launched tech companies down the road that can kind of like trace their family tree back to Bitwise. That's the hopeful outlook. That's the that's the the glass half full view. Gotcha. And let's talk for a second before we close with uh, talking about the regional importance of Fresno. Let's talk about co-working spaces for a minute. As someone that works remotely, co-working spaces can be important, especially if you live in a small apartment and <laughs> there's not much room to think, move around or interact with other people. You but, and me both, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah, but it does feel like it was also the business of co-working spaces that was kind of the death nail. So do you think in some ways Bitwise kind of just jumped into a slightly oversaturated market? And that was maybe, I mean, if we think about interest rates, we think about a lot of the things that were affecting them. There's kind of this temptation sometimes to look at your immediate surroundings and circumstances and not realize that you're in like this kind of larger context of these like global or national patterns and movements. And so it seems like there was kind of a dual thing there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And and Bitwise isn't the cleanest example because they eventually did not own the the buildings themselves. They they had the master lease on them and then sublet them out to people who wanted to to co-work. So I, I'm not sure. I think I think I think the the buildings that are still operating downtown, the former Bitwise buildings, they could continue to be kind of a good experiment to answer the question that you're asking because they'll continue to be, if not outright co-working spaces, at least buildings that are subdivided and sublet among other smaller companies. So I think we'll we'll continue to see whether the the market, at least in Fresno specifically, is is saturated for for co-working spaces or if it's something that that people can find use for and can kind of live on sustainably post bitwise. So we've talked before about the centrality of Fresno, at least within the Central Valley, but also its role on kind of the West Coast. Can you discuss why you think Fresno is important speaking to two different groups? First to outsiders that may be skeptical of its relevance to the movings and going on on the West Coast, but then also to people in Fresno that often feel forgotten or neglected in terms of like what California is. Yeah, I think one reason that the Bitwise messaging was so compelling and for a long time so successful is that Jake and Irma, I think, really tapped into a truth about Fresno, and that's that it is underestimated, something they always said, and it's unfairly underestimated. But I think just the facts are that Fresno is the capital, really, of one of the world's most productive agricultural regions. It's the state's fifth largest city. It's bigger than Sacramento and Oakland. And it, it kind of sits in the center of one of the most important parts of the country's richest, most productive state. I think too, it it 
it's valuable to pay attention to Fresno because it offers a microcosm of what plagues California at a kind of state level. It's an incredibly unequal place. Some of the poorest neighborhoods in the in the country with some of the worst air quality are there. And then some of the richest neighborhoods are there too. So like kind of right in in within not that many miles of each other, you've got like Beverly Hills and you've got Appalachia. And I think it's fair to say it's fair to say what happens in Fresno can can reverberate around the state and that there are lessons to be learned from from the city. And I think that can be good and that could be bad. But I think what's uh, what can't be argued with is that Fresno is one of the most important cities in California and California is kind of the economic and cultural driver of the country. I think too, like whenever a city becomes the butt of a joke, it's always a good sign that there's something more going on and that the city's not really well understood and there's more to its story. I think that's something Fresno had in common with a lot of the cities that it ended up expanding to, whether whether that be like El Paso or Buffalo. I grew up near Detroit. My dad worked in Detroit and Detroit was kind of the same way. And I think kind of people poking fun at at cities is really just a sign that they don't that they don't understand them and that there's something that there's something pretty interesting happening there. Yeah. I agree. And I could probably say a lot more about that, but I'm going to jump to my last question on this topic, which is given what you just said about not understanding and there's a lot more to be discovered, what what kind of topics would you be interested in either reporting yourself, but you can't because you're spread across a whole coast. What kind of stories need to be covered in more detail in Fresno that would be intriguing to readers and people on the outside? Mm. I think the the agriculture industry is uh, it's <laughs> it's it it feels so obvious to say this, but I I don't think people really understand. I mean, it's just it's a it's it's hugely important to the future of the country and the state. And there's just not a lot of people reporting kind of from the front lines of, of the fields and, and either from the kind of workers perspective or doing accountability stories about the, the kind of farming conglomerates and, and big corporations that own them. I think that's, I think that's one area. I think water in in the state in general, but also in the Central Valley is is a is a hot and incredibly important topic and and complicated. And we just like desperately need more people who are fluent in in water rights and in kind of water politics to to do more great stories on on water in the Central Valley and across the state. Couldn't agree more. And to close, what are two or three book recommendations you'd give to listeners? I I would recommend The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which is a few years old, but it is a book I was reading during that 2017 reporting project that kind of turned me on to and contextualized redlining and and de jure segregation in the country. And I think kind of gave me a good framework to approach Fresno. I don't think that Fresno makes a cameo in the book, but I think it, it does kind of add broader context to a lot lot of what we see there. And it's, it's just, a, it's a good read. It's short. It's, it's, it's powerfully written and, and ditto for a newer book, Poverty by America by Matthew Desmond, guy who wrote Evicted and believe won a Pulitzer for it. Short, uh, compelling, 
powerfully written book with a lot of a lot of good research in it. I should mention Mark Rx, my favorite Fresno writer, who whose West of the West was excellent, a book a few years ago that kind of combines memoir and reportage. And his newest book, I think, The Dreamt Land, is next on my list. And speaking of water, Mark does a really, a really powerful, good job writing about water. What are you working on next? Well, there's been a lot of labor strife in Los Angeles. Most high profile, maybe the the actors and writers unions have, have gone on strike, shutting Hollywood down. I've been reporting on that and and kind of its implications across the city and, and country. So is doing- TV going to suck for the indefinite uh, term? It depends if you're like a big fan of reality TV. And okay. if you are, maybe it's a golden age. If not, I don't know. But I'm, I'm prestige dramas in the near term. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. We might have to wait a little bit. And and it, it doesn't seem like the strike is close to, to ending. Yikes. Well, I, for one, wouldn't want a, a movie executive to have control of my AI generated face and use it for whatever means. I'm sure that could end in poorly. But to circle back, I appreciate you doing the reporting on this and getting a clear eyed perspective on it for both local and outside readers. And I appreciate the work you did. Thanks so much. It's It's been great talking and I appreciate you for, for putting Bitwise on my radar again and continuing to, to stay in touch about it and, and for having me on. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.